You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Axios, Richard, Hartman, The Sextant, Brian, Doc Lindsay, Hangman Strain, AJ, Roger the Jolly, Artemis Killmeister, Cap'n Crunch, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, Lord Bellamont was foiled in his plan to have William and Sarah Kidd executed. The assembly members from New York and Massachusetts Bay weren't going to go along with him. There would be fallout. Lord Bellamont was one to hold a grudge, but we're going to hold off on telling that story. For now, Captain Kidd had weeks and weeks of just wallowing away in jail. Nothing to do, no appearances, no court dates, just an empty jail cell and solitary confinement. Bellamont even put him in a cell from which he was unable to talk to anyone on the outside. Even at the time, that would have been seen as cruel and unusual punishment. But Bellamont was worried that Captain Kidd might escape the Boston jail, and he had good reason to be worried. Today, we're going to look at a few other notable escapes from that very same Old Stone Jail. The first of these is only sort of connected to Captain Kidd, but it's an interesting story. If you remember way back when we talked about the Salem Witch Trials, I mentioned a woman named Elizabeth Carey. She was one of the accused. In the later stages of the Salem Witch Trials, that's after they left Salem proper and were taken over by the Boston authorities. That was the period of the trials where the people of New England really kind of lost their minds. Everybody started accusing everybody else. This was the period when Cotton Mather, you know, a real fire and brimstone kind of preacher, when he was counseling everybody to take a step back and a few deep breaths... He was saying, look, you know, witches are real, and I certainly believe that the devil walks Massachusetts, but all these people can't actually be in Congress with the beast. 
Let's be reasonable here. At this point in the witch trials, there were a full 62 people in the old stone jail. All the way from old, feeble men to little five-year-old children, all of them in shackles. The jail was crowded. The prisoners were basically stacked on top of one another. And Elizabeth Carey was one of those accused and imprisoned. She was enduring all the horrors of the old stone jail, and her husband was enraged by this. Her husband was a relatively upstanding member of the Massachusetts community named Captain Nathaniel Carey. But Captain Carey bribed some of the jailers to have his wife moved. And while she was being moved, he sprang a pretty dashing escape for his wife. They fled first to Rhode Island, but when the authorities seemed to be closing in, they fled again, this time, to New York City. New York City was a pretty lawless city. You know, they had pirates roaming the docks. They didn't much mind a witch and a scofflaw. Captain Carey even got to know some of New York's finest. He met the governor, Benjamin Fletcher. He met a magistrate named William Kidd and, of course, his wife Sarah. The Careys even at one point hosted Thomas II upon his return from the East Indies. It seems clear that had Captain Carey wished to do so, he could have joined in that league of pirates and interlopers and pirate-adjacent types that made up the pirate round. But he didn't. He had a ship of his own, but mostly he kept his nose clean. That's why... Several years later, here in 1699, Lord Bellamont chose Captain Carey to sail south and collect the adventure prize from Hispaniola. Clearly, he'd had the opportunity, maybe even the motive, to turn pirate, to go rogue on the account, but he didn't. He seemed like an honest and trustworthy man. Beyond that, though, he was someone that Sarah Kidd knew from their time in New York, so she trusted him to deal with everything fairly as well. It was a win-win choice, a good decision on the part of Lord Bellamont. But really, that's it. That's the headline about Captain Kidd this week. Sarah was extremely busy writing letters to anybody she thought might be able to help them. Anyone that owed them a favor, she was getting in contact. Lord Bellamont also was busy writing letters back to London, but mostly, not a lot was actively happening at the time. So instead, we're going to focus on two pirates who at one point in their respective careers escaped the old stone jail at Boston. But soon enough, both of them would find themselves imprisoned alongside Captain Kidd. This is episode 278, the most impudent, hardened villain I ever saw. We're going to begin with a pirate with whom we should be relatively well acquainted. His real name was James Kelly, but at the time he appears to have been going by Gilliam. That's what everybody in this story knew him as, until later on in some official documents when he used his proper name. James Kelly's first stint in the Boston jail was pretty brief and took place a few years earlier. He was an old sea dog. By 1699, James Kelly began his privateering career sailing under Jan Willems. He was already a sailor, serving on board a merchant ship that was attacked by Jan Willems in the windward passage between Jamaica and Hispaniola. 
Kelly decided to sign on with the privateers, and that began a 20-year career in privateering and piracy. This career would take him all over the West Indies. They raided Santiago de Cuba. They raided Campeche. James Kelly attacked Veracruz in a fleet led by Michel de Grammont. He would later sail with Thomas Paine and Jacob Evertson and Lauro de Graff. At one point, he signed up to sail with a John Eaton, which eventually would take him to the South Sea, where a great pirate fleet was gathering to attack Lima in Peru. That's the second Pacific adventure. Kelly wound up sailing under Edward Davis on board the Bachelor's Delight, and arrived with them in North America in 1685. Kelly was one of those pirates who left the Bachelor's Delight before Edward Davis and Lionel Wafer were arrested in Virginia. See, James Kelly had heard that his old friend Thomas Paine was set up in Rhode Island and went there to visit him. The two old sea dogs did indeed meet up, but Kelly would be arrested during his stint in Rhode Island and sent to the Boston jail. They knew who he was, they knew his history, they knew he was a pirate, and they intended to send him to England, where he would face trial at the Old Bailey. But James Kelly escaped the Old Stone Jail. Apparently, a well-placed bribe convinced one of the jailers, maybe Caleb Ray himself, to do some repair work on a nearby cell. When the repairs were done, wouldn't you know it that absent-minded jailer just left a crowbar outside Kelly's cell. James Kelly used that crowbar to pry the bars from his window. He slipped out and made his way to New York. When he arrived in New York, he found the Bachelor's Delight already there. Now, his old captain was in jail, but George Rayner was in command, and they were planning a trip to the East Indies. This was among the early voyages to the Pirate Round, which we should also be passingly familiar with. That's when James Kelly was arrested and sent to a Mughal prison. And we all know the story from here, right? When I introduced James Kelly, we talked about his time in prison, specifically how Christian prisoners were treated by the authorities. It wasn't great, but if you agreed to convert to Islam, they were more lenient. Fewer beatings, better food, that kind of thing. Even if it was really only a conversion of convenience, it wasn't too arduous. You had to pray at the right times, you had to worship with the other Muslims, and of course you didn't get any booze or pork, but they weren't giving you that anyway. The only real sacrifice any of these converts had to make was, well, it was a decent test of faith. Christians at the time, at least Christians in Western Europe, Catholics and Protestants, usually they were not circumcised. But Muslims and Jews and some sects of the Orthodox Christian faith were circumcised. If you were going to convert, they had to snip you. Now we don't know if James Kelly was ever an honest Muslim. He may have been merely trying to get that better treatment in prison, but he did convert, and thus he was circumcised. When we originally discussed this topic, a few folks wrote me saying that they tuned into the show expecting, you know, some swashbuckling high seas adventure, and instead got a fairly in-depth lesson of early modern circumcision practices. So, you know, 
Sorry about that, but I did say it would be important, and today it is. James Kelly was part of a series of breakouts in India that included a number of other pirates like Robert Culliford. Kelly took part in the capture of the Mocha frigate and sailed with the pirates under Culliford for a few months, but when William Kidd arrived at St. Mary's Island and announced his intention to sail for America, James Kelly decided to join him. He signed up to sail on board the Adventure Prize alongside his old captain, Edward Davis. After a long, tough voyage, they finally arrived in New England. James Kelly kept asking to leave the ship. William Kidd didn't want to let him. But after most of Captain Kidd's treasure had been hidden away on one of a number of places around the region, he let James Kelly leave, who went to go stay with Thomas Paine. However, when John Gardner, one of the men who had taken in some of Captain Kidd's treasure, when he arrived in Boston in late August to deliver some of that treasure to Lord Bellamont, he also brought a chest full of plunder that belonged to James Kelly. Now, Lord Bellamont didn't even know about James Kelly. He didn't know that he was in America. But John Gardner was more than happy to tell him all about this notorious pirate. He offered up that information freely. See, John Gardner was terrified of James Kelly. He had received word from Lord Bellamont a few weeks earlier that he was to deliver all of that plunder to Boston, and Gardner set out to do just that when James Kelly, probably hearing whispers of this, arrived at Gardner's Island demanding the return of his plunder. Now, Gardner wasn't there, but his wife was. Kelly threatened Mrs. Gardner with all manner of untoward violences if she didn't produce his plunder soon. Her defense, and it was probably true, was that she didn't know anything about it, and she would let her husband know all about what he had to say when he returned. James Kelly told her that they could drop all of that treasure off at Francis Dole's house. Francis Dole was yet another old sea dog, an occasional pirate he'd sailed with John Hoare most recently. His house was in Charlestown, Massachusetts. Now today, Charlestown is a neighborhood in Boston, just across the water from downtown. It's where Bunker Hill is, where really the only shipyard in America worthy of the name was at the time. All of the sailors who lived in Massachusetts lived in Charlestown. That's where Francis Dole was, that's where James Kelly was staying, and that's where Kelly told John Gardner to find him. Gardner told the governor, quote, I now live in fear of the man that owned the precious stones. His name is James Gilliam. He would continue, We shall always live in fear, except Gilliam should be taken and executed. End quote. Bellamont was at this point busy trying to arrest any pirate he could who had any connection to Captain Kidd. He was having trouble rounding them up, but this James Gilliam was handed to him on a silver platter. He sent a team of constables round to Francis Dole's house, accompanied by a doctor. Now, the doctor was Jewish, and that's important here. 
that doctor had an examination to do. According to a number of reports, including one given by John Gardner, James Kelly had converted to Islam. When that team of constables arrived at Francis Dole's house, James Kelly was there, but he pretended not to be James Kelly. However, those constables burst in, overpowered him, and took him to the ground, held him down. One of the constables had the probably awkward job of removing his breeches. The doctor was able to examine James Kelly, and it turns out that this man fit the bill. He was arrested and taken to Boston. Before he was thrown in jail, James Kelly met the governor. He figured out what had happened, that John Gardner had sold him out, and James Kelly had this to say to the Earl. He said, quote, I will be the downfall of Gardner and his family if it takes me twenty years. I will not spare man, woman, or child. I will fire all his houses and barns and kill all his cattle and sheep. End quote. Lord Bellamont, having met this pirate for the first time, would later say that he was, quote, the most impudent, hardened villain. I ever saw. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Capturing James Kelly had been easy. Lord Bellamont knew exactly where to find him. But the governor was after any and every pirate he could get his hands on. Those who had sailed with Captain Kidd especially, but anyone would do. He couldn't find any, though. He knew that there were a bunch of them in New York City, and there were, but the officers there hadn't arrested anyone for piracy. Lord Bellamont was pulling out his hair over this. Richard Zacks writes, quote, Bellamont blamed New York's pro-outlaw stand on simple economics. The pirates who had come home in June were filling New York's taverns, whorehouses, and back-alley markets. End quote. 
Lord Bellamont would later say after a few alleged pirates had been arrested and then immediately released on bail, quote, They cannot be persuaded to keep a pirate there in jail. They love him too well. End quote. His only real success was a pirate who was not in any way associated with Captain Kidd. His name was Joseph Bradish. Joseph Bradish was a Massachusetts native. He was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts on November 28, 1672. And he had a lot of relatives in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. That would come in handy. Joseph Bradish, like a lot of young men in the era, wanted to be a sailor. He signed up to sail on board the 350-ton London-based Pink Adventure. The Adventure was a private merchant ship owned by a London firm that was bound for Borneo on this 1698 voyage. According to Don C. Seitz, the Adventure was an interloper, an illegal slaving vessel. Now, this was a common type of voyage for enterprising businessmen interested in buying and selling human beings, but... The adventure was in no way connected to that powerful cabal of New York merchants and politicians. It had nothing to do with Benjamin Fletcher or Frederick Phillips or any of those guys. This was just an independent interloping voyage. The captain of the adventure, Thomas Gullick, was a brutal man. He was a taskmaster, really. He worked his crew for hours upon hours, beyond any rational limits, even for the rough labor practices of the day. When those men would fall over from exhaustion, they would be beaten for being lazy. They weren't even fed enough to meet their necessary daily caloric intake. They were starving. By the time they reached the Indian Ocean, a few men had in fact starved to death. And as far as the captain was concerned, you know, that's just fine. He was about to buy a whole heap of human beings that he could force to work for no money at all. If some of these men that he would eventually have to pay, if some of them died off, well, that's just good economics, isn't it? The crew, as you might imagine, hated Captain Gullick. Together, they sent a deputation to the captain demanding better treatment, more food. And the captain responded with clubs. All of the officers on board beat the crew bloody and killed at least one of them in their response. For a while, this seems to have quelled any rebellion. But as the ship passed into what we know today as Indonesia, near the island of Singapore, the crew decided to send yet another deputation to speak to the captain. And again, Captain Gullock ordered his officers to beat the crew bloody with their clubs. However, this time the crew was ready for them. They'd collected their own weapons, not swords and guns. A captain as brutal and terrible as this one was smart enough to keep his real weapons locked up. But you needed to have axes on board a ship to cut ropes. You needed knives, and of course there were just big pieces of lumber and the like laying around. They had enough to fight back. And when the officers pulled out their own clubs and moved in to beat them, the crew stabbed and hatcheted and beat all of those officers. Now, I'm not sure that this was exactly a planned mutiny. It's hard to say. 
The crew definitely planned ahead when they armed themselves, and they knew that they would be attacked when they demanded food and basic human decency. They had to know that it was likely to turn to violence. But if the captain had said, You know what? You guys are all right. Here's dinner. They might not have attacked the officers. But that's not what happened, and once those officers were subdued, the crew was in charge of the ship. And they decided at that point to make the mutiny official. They left Captain Gullock and those fifteen officers who had been behind all of the beatings and horrific treatment, the men who had been eating plenty of nice, fatty, fresh foods while they were eating a few pieces of hardtack a week, they left those men on an island called Mais. They marooned them, but it was in a very populated shipping lane. It's not like they were going to die there. But then the crew held a vote. They said that anyone who wanted to leave was free to do so. No hard feelings, and a number of men did choose to leave the ship. They were given a boat, and they were given food and water, and they were allowed to row to a nearby Dutch factory. There they filed a report and got passage to English India. The crew of the adventure was fine with this. They weren't trying to kill anyone here. However... Now that everybody on board was on board with the mutiny, they held elections, and they elected Joseph Bradish, who had been the gunner, to be their captain. Now the crew did not have any intention of going on the account. They had no plans of attacking ships to capture plunder. In Pirates of the Eastern Seas, Charles Gray writes, quote, Though no other seizures were made, and the men set adrift reached shore safely enough, the seizure of the ship and disposal of the cargo for the benefit of the crew were sufficient to cause the crew on the Adventure Pink to be proclaimed pirates. End quote. They weren't there to sack Mughal shipping or capture Portuguese prizes or East India Company vessels. That's not what they were about here. But there was a bunch of money on board this pink. It was intended for that illegal interloping slave trading that they were going to do. But the crew decided to just take it. They had no interest in buying and selling people. They just distributed the money amongst themselves. And you can understand that, right? I think we all can. Anybody who had endured what they had endured, yeah, Go ahead and take the money. All they'd really wanted to do was to stop the beatings, to get enough to eat and hopefully make it home. And that's what they did. They marooned the worst offenders, they set those who didn't want to be associated with the mutiny, they let them go, and then they took the money they felt they were owed and headed home. Now there's not much to talk about on their trip home. You know, we know they stopped, for example, at Mauritius to buy food, but... They weren't attacking anyone. Mostly, they just sailed on their way to America. They arrived at Long Island, New York, in July 1699. And they could not have chosen a worse time to show their faces in the region. As far as they knew, before they arrived in America, they thought that Benjamin Fletcher was still the governor of New York. They thought they could probably expect a warm welcome. But Fletcher was out, and Lord Bellamont was in. 
in July, he was in Boston, not New York, but he was busy dealing with William Kidd, trying to coax him in to Boston. Bellamont was on the warpath about all pirates, and this crew of mutineers were just the kind of criminals that Lord Bellamont, unable to get Captain Kidd as of yet, he would just love to get his hands on these guys. Now, there was that Act of Grace of 1698. All pirates, if they turned themselves in, were eligible for a pardon, and these guys definitely fit the bill. They were told in New York that if they went to Boston, they could collect their pardon and go their merry way. So that's what they did. They were happy to turn the money over to whoever they needed to and take their pardons. But they didn't get those pardons. When they arrived in Boston and turned themselves in peacefully, the entire crew was thrown into the old stone jail. A few days later, William Kidd would be tossed in alongside them. But to bring this all back around, Joseph Bradish, later that August, escaped the old stone jail. In Pirate Nests and the Rise of the British Empire, Mark G. Hanna writes, quote, Joseph Bradish escaped from Boston's jail in 1699 with the help of a maid named Kate Price. This was not a particularly Houdini-esque feat, seeing as Bradish was related to the jailer. End quote. He was let out of jail, is what he's saying there. Did I use that quote because I wanted to say the words Houdini-esque feat? Yes, I did. But this escape was the last straw in Lord Bellamont's patience for the guy who ran the jail, Caleb Ray. He was having issues with William Kidd, but when Bellamont discovered that Bradish had escaped and been allowed to escape by one of his relatives, he fired Caleb Ray and exiled him from Massachusetts. Now, it's hard to say what Lord Bellamont's exact motivations were at this period in time, but events line up in such a fashion that it's possible that the escape of Joseph Bradish may have had a hand in shaping his attitude toward pirates, toward William Kidd specifically. Bradish escaped. He fires Caleb Ray, and then he goes to the council and says, Hey guys, let's kill William Kidd. He was upset, he was angry. But Joseph Bradish would not spend long on the lamb. After he escaped, Bellamont ordered 250 pieces of eight for his capture, alive. Only a couple of weeks later, an Iroquois man named Escambuit spotted Joseph Bradish camping out in Maine. At least that's what he told the authorities. It's possible that Bradish tried to take refuge with the Iroquois. You know, maybe they said, yeah, sure, come on in, and then decided to turn him over to the governor. Either way, this Iroquois man carried Joseph Bradish to Boston, turned him in, and actually got paid. Joseph Bradish was thrown back into the Boston jail. By that point, Sarah Kidd had been freed, but... William was still there, as was James Kelly, and none of them would escape ever again. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, 
everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. I couldn't do this without all of you. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows like Big Picture Science, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.